I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. okay i can good how you doing i'm good how are you doing good 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 i see we both have some interesting avatars on the screen here <laughs> yours is i think more impressive than mine <laughs> well is, is yours one of those things where somebody had like a black wax thing and then they etched to scratch the wax off of it is that what that is yeah it's actually a black scratch board that's what i meant yeah i haven't seen one of those in years that's a really good picture it's one of those kind of somewhat dark, mostly gray days. It's sure. Well, I mean, that my album is perfect for this season. It really is. It really uh, is. <laughs> yeah. We're not live right now, right? I'm just curious what you wanted to do here, because I'm down with anything, talking about process, talking about some of those really esoteric, weird things you and I used to talk about. Yeah, I thought we would do all of that. All right. So let us begin. <laughs> <laughs> the official. So my guest is J.D. Ryan. He's a musician and a former DJ here at WGDR, where we originally connected over our mutual appreciation for ambient and atmospheric music, which often combines natural elemental sounds and sound textures with like subtle electronics to create like 
oral environments and like portals into various kinds of altered states of consciousness or experience. And he has a new debut album out. Yeah, it came out July uh, July 30th. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's entitled Mostly Gray, mm-hmm. which definitely fits today. Mm-hmm. So, J.D., welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Roll up for the Mystery Tour. Um, it, And I'm doing it under the artist named Thorny. It's, it's funny I had to think about that, you know, because it's just, you know, I don't see myself like I'm Sting or something. But because, uh, you know, this is a huge genre. And I see some people, I think, that have maybe interesting actual names. We'll use their names. But some people, we have a name, John Ryan, which is like the equivalent of John Smith. <laughs> okay. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't make for some compelling stuff. So I tried to collaborate with some people online during the pandemic. And they weren't exactly the most focused or easy to work with people. And I was getting a little pissy about some things. And somebody had said, well, your personality is pretty thorny. <laughs> and, and I heard that and that the light bulb went off. And I'm like, there it is right there. So I just want to throw that in there because in case people are looking for an album from J.D. Ryan, they're probably not going to find one. But um, yeah, Thorny, mostly gray. This one's uh, interesting because, well, being my first, some of these tracks go back to about, I think, 2017 when I was really starting to get serious about the ambient, the synthesis and stuff like that. And uh, when I finally stopped procrastinating, I'm like, you got to put this album out. I mean, what, what are you doing? All What are you going up and spending four hours a night in your studio for? I mean, Obviously for enjoyment, first of all, and, you know, expression, but I want to get it out there because I thought that maybe some of it was actually worth, you know, other people might find some value in it. So um, after last winter, I didn't create much because I spent almost all of winter agonizing on what tracks to uh, put on this, you know, because I, I had to go through three or four years worth of material. A lot of it's uh, a little more recent, inspired by the pandemic. There's one tune in particular on there that was, I guess, my oral impression of the pandemic. Which one was that? At the end of Before, I have an interesting story about this one. I, I wrote this the night that I first, when the lockdowns all happened. We're listening to The End of Before in the Background by my guest, John Ryan, a.k.a. Thorny. And... It was reminiscent of Van Gelis's dystopian music from Blade Runner. Well, that's an interesting connection there. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah. you described it as something that you created just as the pandemic was shutting things down. So so tell us about that. Okay. I remember that day finally you had the lockdowns. I was when everybody was scared as all hell to go with you anything. And, well, we need groceries. So I guess I'm going to venture out. And I remember just, it was a cloudy day, kind of looked like it did today. And I don't know why in particular, just driving by the dump, you know, between Montpelier and Plainfield there, the dump, the Casella place. I don't know why, I just remember that particular moment looking up and seeing the gray and how dark it was and looking around and seeing nobody on the roads and just thinking how strange it was. And then going to the grocery store, having everybody masked up. But not only that, just the way people were looking at each other. Like everybody was, nobody wanted to get too close. Everybody was, you know, some people looked genuinely terrified. Other people looked, you know, and I just remember thinking to myself, is like, wow, this is, this is not normal. And I think that everything just changed. It, it was just this thing. It's like the, the first time I can ever think of in my lifetime where the world was going through some sort of collective trauma, collectively. You know, there's always trauma going on in the world, you know, and 
you could say World War II affected everybody, but there were still places during the Second World War that you lived and you could probably not know the Second World War was going on. And uh, we didn't have that luxury with this. And so when I went home, I was still kind of in that mindset of like, God, that this is just, you know, this feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I sat down, I think I turned on the synthesizers and I uh, found that sound and it just, I went with it. And I kept picturing that gray churning sky which is what you hear, that droney thing going in the background. And those little things coming in and out were just, I guess, my perception. You know, looking at things, seeing the fear. That's probably the most explanation I've ever given for a piece of music right there. So yeah, that's the story of that. And I, I like that one because more than any other piece on the album, when I go back and listen to it, it evokes a particular thing. A very clear, particular... I'm thinking to myself a Price Chopper looking at people with masks on. I'm thinking to myself driving down Route 2 and just... The fact that I'd only seen like two cars in 20 minutes in the middle of the day, you know. So that's my pandemic song. So another track, I don't remember the term used, but it made me think of vocalizations. And there's a track titled Surface Fractures. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it has some vocal elements uh, to it. It you does. Um, that one, that's the oldest track on the album. Out of all my early experiments, when I first started messing around with synthesizers and, uh, you know, the process bass through the big pedal board, that was one of the first ones I'd done that I was sort of happy with. Where I was like, I remember listening to that song, like, oh, maybe I'm actually onto something here. Maybe I actually may know how to do this. And yeah, that one, so it has a big drone going on in the background and things come in and out. I think there was some sort of tribal voice sample that I had used. And then what makes them really sort of interesting is they go through a little bit of a processing warp where sometimes they sound a little off or like they sound sped up or they sound kind of low. Sometimes it sounds a little bit like children and sometimes it sounds like, you know, the hall of elders or whatever. So um, I'm not a very vocally oriented person. Oh, I love to talk, but in terms of my musical choices and even what I do. I just think that I have a crazy theory about why I'm not so into vocals. Would you like to hear it? Yeah. Okay. Because, you know, it's like, well, it's, 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 I think about this a lot because, you know, I don't play much of my music for any of my friends. I really don't. I have not subjected any of my close friend circle to any of my stuff because with few exceptions, I don't think any of them could relate to this music at all. I mean, I got friends that like Americana. I got deadhead friends. I got prog rock friends. And I, mean, I like a lot of this stuff too. But I've never really, I don't know, I've never, the, the human voice in terms of lyrics tends not to resonate with me for some reason, whereas a voice as an instrument does. And that's not a judgment on the value of singing or the value of vocal expression or, or meaning that if somebody sings something, it means any less or more than what I do. But even when I listen to like, you know, prog rock, like I listen to something like Close to the Edge from Yes or something. Uh, you know, big 20-minute prog epic. I don't understand what half the lyrics are and about that. It's really esoteric. It's it's somewhat spiritual in nature, which doesn't resonate with me much either. But I look at the singers as John Anderson's voice as just like another instrument in the mix. And when I do it, I can get a lot of satisfaction and joy. But I think why I tend not to like the lyric as my chosen form of expression is because I think it adds, for me, and I, I know that most people do not think of music this way or lyrics this way, it puts an undue influence in things. And what I mean is what I like about this music is it's so wildly open to interpretation. Or when I hear a Steve Roach piece or something like that, 
And of course, Steve Rhodes is infusing his personality and his talent and his experience and his expression or his spirituality or whatever. He's infusing that into the music, but he's not there telling me about it. You know what I mean? He's not talking about the ancient spirits or the thing, this or what we should do or da 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 da. I can get whatever I want out of it myself. And I think that's why this instrumental formless music just seems to resonate with me so much more than, than lyrical music. Does that make sense? Totally. I feel the same way. I grew up feeling the same way. I would even sort of characterize myself when it comes to listening to songs as being mm -hmm. orally dyslexic in that I often cannot make out what people are saying and I, I create my own <laughs> songs that many years later I find were completely different than what they were actually so did, singing. So, so did you think like Hey Jude was uh, Hey Dude and Stairway to Heaven was Stairway to Kevin or something like that or? No, no, no. I'm, I'm kind of, ex <laughs> I'm exaggerating it, but, but like I know, you, I know. Dark Side of the Loon? No, I don't generally do things like that, <laughs> but uh, I love the sound of the human voice but I, mm -hmm. I much prefer it used as a more nebulous kind of an instrument mm -hmm. rather than telling a story that will engage exactly. the, you know, my left brain. Exactly, and that, that's mine parallels that too. I mean, a lot of times, I always think back what Brian Eno said about, I don't know if it was music for airports or just a broader discussion about ambient music in general, is I think he says something about the music can become part of your environment and it can be music that you ignore. You know, and it sounds counterintuitive when you say that to somebody, well, it's it's music, it's an expression. Don't you want people to listen to it? And I'm like, no, not this. I want them to feel it, you know, and feel it doesn't necessarily even require active listening. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a funny story about how, if you want to just switch gears for a second about process and yeah. how agonizing the process for me was for this whole album, there was several issues. There was first the, is it good enough? You know, and it's the whole, is it good, you know, it, it, for whom? For yourself, for, you know, the listener, who? And I thought, well, I think it's good enough for me. But within that, in this particular genre, I think I had a brief conversation with Robert Rich one time. And one thing Robert Rich had said, no, it was an interview. I'm confusing things here. This was an interview and they had asked him, for those listeners who don't know, Robert Rich is a pretty pioneering ambient. You're familiar with him, Tony, right? You know Robert Rich is, don't you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, somebody asked him about, you know, is it great that music is becoming more democratic now in terms of that more people can make it? You know, we have the tools now, you know, things that used to be able to create with synthesizers cost thousands of dollars you can buy on a $50 plug-in on your computer. And he said, well, on one hand, yes, it's great. On another hand, it's not because it's a craft you develop over time. And in terms of this genre, which can be pretty abstract, he goes, now you just have a lot of people, you know, holding down a key on a software synthesizer for a half hour and releasing it as a drone, you know? And I think he was getting out. It's, it's really easy to make this kind of music now, but it's a lot harder to make something original. And that was really nagging me as I was going together and listening to these things. You know, does this just sound like some generic thing that I just press down a key on a software synthesizer and let run for 20 minutes? That's not how I did it, but it was it was in the back of my mind quite a bit. And so that was the, one of the difficulties of the process was this, does this sound like, I don't want to just put out another droney album of just stuff that's just, you know, unremarkable, doesn't sound like any different than anything else I've ever heard. And as I started listening to the stuff, I heard little things there that obviously required some thought. This required some arrangement. This required this. So that was the first obstacle is getting over the, you know, is this unique enough to put out? And then there was the whole, 
you know, is it good enough? And I think the key revelation I had with Let Me Let Go of That, and where I started making progress on the album, was my friend had said to me, he goes, John, he goes, I think you're listening to your music like you listen to jazz or progressive rock. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, when you listen to jazz or really incredibly complex music, a lot of times you do focus on the instruments and the technical aspects of it. And he goes, when you throw on a Steve Roach album or a Robert Rich album, what do you do? I just usually, you know, put it on the background, throw my headphones on or whatever and go about what I'm doing. He goes, well, isn't this how you should be listening to your own music? Shouldn't you be just putting it on the background and doing, going about your thing and judging it on those merits? Because A, that's how you listen to music. B, that's how most people, I think, that listen to this genre of music often do it. They may get into some deep meditation over the music, or they may be doing their homework over the music, but they're not sitting there looking, oh, we did it A minor seven there, you know? So once I got over that, that was a big eureka moment. I was like, okay, I think I can do this. And then it just came down to figuring out what was best. And then it came down to mixing it down really well, because you have a lot of sounds that, um, you know, they're in the same frequencies things like that. So you have to make sure you have the volumes right. Things that you record really loud sometimes, you think, oh, that's where it's going in the mix. And then you, you realize that when you go take that track that you thought was the feature of the track and you turn it way down so it's barely audible, that's when the track starts to work. And to tie that into vocals again, there's one track on there, it was the last track on there, Malformations. It's probably the darkest track on the album. And one of the things I used in the background, I used this synthesizer program that did all these crazy things with choral samples and when they recorded them they'd have people come into the studio you see these i saw the video from this and they would have like a choir sitting on one side of the room like thumping their chests you know like you know thumping their, uh, you know, doing things like that and then they'd have the men on the other side doing something with the oh and they would take all these things and mix them together and create these incredibly strange vocal soundscapes So I used that as the basis for my track in Malformations. And then I had this part come over with an Ebo, which is this little sustainer thing you can play over a string on a stringed instrument that'll sustain it indefinitely. And I had this come in, this kind of, I don't want to say abrasive, but, you know, just sort of ominous drone comes in with the Ebo. And for the longest time as I was listening to this song, it was so out in the forefront. But when I put it in the uh, context of listening to the mix, it was overwhelming everything. And I spent two or three nights trying to figure out where does this thing belong in this track here. And when I finally lowered it to about half its original volume, it worked. So you'll hear that if you listen to Malformations, or you'll hear this thing come in there. So it was, it was a very difficult process for me. It was very, very difficult. A lot of agonizing late nights till two or three in the morning. Try to overcome some hearing difficulties that I've developed in the last year or two didn't help things either because I had to retrain my ears a little bit. So anyway. That was a long ramble there. No, that's that's fine. So I have a couple of questions. Um, do you ever get stoned before you start? Unfortunately, almost every time. Because what I'm thinking of is, you know, when you get stoned, it completely alters your embodied relationship with the music. Mm -hmm. And it can often make you feel like, oh, this music is amazing. And then mm -hmm. when you go back and listen to it when you're not stoned, it's a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know what you mean. No, it's, there's a joke. There's an old joke about that. It's like, what did the Grateful Dead fans say when he ran out of weed? 
this music sucks. Exactly. <laughs> I, say, I, 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 say, I, I say that as a deadhead who loves the dead immensely. I'm just going to put that out there so nobody flames me on that. So has that happened? Yes and no. Um, a lot of times my processes just go up, turn on some synthesizers or turn on the bass and the pedal board and just start tinkering around and lay down something, lay down a, lay down a groove, lay down a drone. And sometimes it never goes further than that. And sometimes I, maybe, I don't know, because I was too high and I thought it was cool at the time. And then the next morning I wake up and I listen to it. I'm like, what the hell is that? Well, this is boring as all hell. Why would I use this? But it, it hasn't been an impediment in terms of that for the most part. When it's an impediment sometimes, because I, I tend to work late at night. You know, my wife goes to bed around 10, 11. And then I go up to the studio probably till about, you know, anywhere from 11 to, you know, two or three sometimes. And, you know, it's easy to, you know, overdo anything. And sometimes you get to the point where, you know, you, you do too much. You're just getting distracted. You're not focusing. And that's happened. But it, overall, it's it's probably helped. And, you know, I will I, I will even say the psychedelics have influenced my music a little bit. Some of my sessions might have been under a little bit of a glimmer, too. So, yeah, it's, it's um, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, that's like one side of, of what I was. I didn't mean to insinuate that it was a had a negative influence on things because often oh, it I does find, sometimes it can yeah, it can yeah, it can but often i find that it can be quite the opposite that it mm-hmm. can it can stimulate tremendous wonderful oh, creativity oh absolutely i've had i've yeah. had the, the hardest problem i have sometimes i don't know how many great pieces i've lost because i'm on a roll i keep going i keep going i keep going you know it's next thing i know it's two o'clock and i get this little subconscious thing okay you should probably go to bed now john you know you have to work tomorrow. And, and there's that other part saying, but I'm on a roll. I've come up with five parts for this music. It's going somewhere. Don't stop now. And, you know, when I go with that and I stick with it, the magic happens. But there's been a few times where I just, you know, I'm just tired. i got to stop. But overall, no, I don't think it's affected things too much negatively. And it's interesting listening to it because a lot of times when I put my album on, I'm working. You know, I'll, I'll listen to it here working and I'm as bad as sober as you can get. And doesn't detract from my enjoyment any any less. I'll tell you that much. I mean, it, put it this way: if your music can only be enjoyed under the and I'm trying to sound like a prude here, if, if the only way you can enjoy music under drugs, I don't know. I think you have some questions to ask yourself. Mm-hmm. You know. So I imagine that you've watched people play this kind of music live. Last year, I think it was last year, I actually watched Steve Roach perform live in his studio. Yeah, yeah, the time room streams. I watch, yeah, I know you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think that way you get a real close up view of what's going on because if you if you go see something live, you're not going to have that close up perspective. Right, right. It, it's funny, but with fig, well, as as somebody learning this stuff, even I, I try to watch a lot of. You know, Robert Rich has a lot of videos too, and I'll try to watch what they're doing. You know, and associate because you know when you just listen to this stuff. You know, you don't know what's what. Is this one instrument? Is this 10 instruments? Is this a bunch of clever editing? You know, it helps to watch them sometimes and you can see some of the process. Oh, I saw he just tweaked a knob on his modular synth there to change that sequence. Oh, that's what that pad is. It's on the Prophet 5. You, you know what I mean? It's it's. I find that stuff very helpful. I actually saw, but as far as myself seeing this, I have seen this music exactly once live. I saw Steve Roach earlier this year in June. There's this great, and I'm going to recommend this to all your listeners here. There's this production company out there called Ambient Church. Have you heard of it? No. Okay, definitely look it up when we're done with this. And what they do is they they probably have about four or five shows a year. And they find really architecturally amazing buildings, usually churches. You know, the kinds of churches you see in big cities, you know. And they'll have an artist come in and 
what they do is they have some sort of software, I guess, that scans every little orifice of the building, basically, the entire topography of it. Then they construct the light show around that. So what will happen is you will see things that integrate into the architecture, for example. So I saw Steve Roach, he did an ambient church show down in um, Central Park East, you know, where all the museums are. It was right down the road from the Guggenheim. It was the uh, Church of the Heavenly Rest. So behind him, behind him is this big stained glass window, like these churches tend to have, big round stained glass window with some patterns on it. They mapped this thing out with this light show. So at times it looked like the filigrees in the window were melting and going down the back of the church. Other times it looked like the lights from hell, the red lights from hell were coming through this window and broadcasting around the church. Then you would see the pillars of the church would look like they were turning to like gold and then they would start to melt. It was one of the most amazing visual experiences I've ever seen, combined with the fact that Steve Roach is sitting up there for two and a half hours doing a two and a half hour nonstop set. And it was one of the most profound musical experiences of my life. And it made me also realize something else in terms of live performance in this music. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard because if you're not accustomed to this stuff, it's boring as hell. To just watch somebody sit up there and turn knobs on a synthesizer. If you even see that, you know, I mean, he's behind the synthesizers. They're behind the synthesizers. So if you're not in, into the mindset, it's not necessarily the most compelling thing. So I, I think one of the things I've thought about is I'm working on my second album now is, do I want to play this stuff in front of people? And I'd love to. But I think that's going to involve me maybe collaborating somehow with some sort of good visual artist that can do some really compelling visuals behind the music that interacts with the music. Yeah, that makes total sense. I remember about 30 years ago or so, we were going through a phase in the station where a number of us were were playing vinyl. I mean, right. that's mainly what we had was vinyl. CDs were just showing up and we were playing music in the background and then we would play spoken word stuff of all kinds and we weren't scratching i mean because none of us you know knew how to do that really right. but we we would play like a phrase off one album and then if we really liked it we would just repeat it a number of times and then we we'd have a bunch of other records and we'd be playing with these things and it was quite amazing sometimes. Sometimes it didn't really work very well, but sometimes... Oh, yeah, it's, it a, common, it's a common technique. No, it's a common technique now. You hear it in all, it feels like a lot of bands. Yeah, and I've done that too. I've loaded up my sample. I did an interesting thing one time where I found... I wanted something to put over some dark music. I actually had a couple live performances. I had a little synthesizer duo going for a little while. And right before the pandemic, they were doing this Saturday synth fest thing at this little performance space in Bellows Falls, of all places. And we did two of them. And it was, it was interesting because I've never been more nervous about a gig in my life. You know, and I, as a bass player playing in funk bands and stuff, I played in front of large crowds. I know what it's like to play in front of several thousand people, you know, and I didn't get near the stage fright playing in front of those people as I did playing in this room with about 30 people in it. And I think it, I, my leg was shaking like Elvis. I'm not kidding. And I think it was because it's the first time I put something so personal out there that was me. It wasn't, you know, John just playing a bass line behind the funky singer. You know what I mean? It was like, this is like unfiltered essence of John here. And what was so interesting about it, it was, there was about three or four artists. Some of them were more in that noise genre, which I'm really not a fan of. But we had the last slot and we did this kind of nice down-tempo groove thing. And I had never seen a more attentive audience in my life. I mean, 30 people, it reminded me of a classical music audience. You know, I'm looking around as I'm playing, seeing people closing their eyes. They're just looking intently. They're, they're not getting up and dancing. 
you know, they're not doing the, the hippie twirl. They're sitting there and listening. And it was such a profound experience. And behind us, we had this amazing, I, I can't remember their names. It was guys from Springfield, Mass, I think. And they did such an amazing job behind us with these visuals. And that's when I also made that link of like, I think this music for it to really resonate with an audience, a live audience needs this good visual. You know, things like mandalas and stuff like that for certain people and certain mindsets, those things hit those sweet spots for people as a compliment to the music. So, yeah. The reason why I brought that up was because one night me and a friend of mine, we were filling in for somebody and we each manned a turntable with mm -hmm. a stack of records. So we were doing call and response with different awesome. records. And and this particular night, it was like pure magic. We were playing oh, things that were, that were literally talking to each other. And we, we were just mm -hmm. randomly picking these things out. And after that, I thought of going on stage. And on stage would just be two people sitting there with a turntable on a mm -hmm. stand mm -hmm. and doing that. And the way you described how boring it could be, it didn't really occur to me until now how boring that would look to an audience. But well, that, that was my image of doing this live on stage. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a great idea. I, mean, it's, I, I had a, sometimes I go back when I want to do that, I go back and I go like on the internet archive and I find old films. I did a really interesting sound set. That's what I'm calling them, you know, the samples I pick. I did one, I found an old film from the mid 60s about mental hospitals. And of course, as you know, this was not exactly a very enlightened time in terms of how we dealt with the mental ill. And there's all these interviews. So I got all these samples of like, you know, somebody saying no, no one who would care or something that the announcer, you know, the, you know, the announcer that did all the films in the 60s when we were in school, the, 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 the official sounding guy. Like I'd have like these little samples of something. The drugs could not have kicked in at a better time. Things like that. Or, you know, grim, isolated, lonely. So I got all these samples from this mental illness film. And I did this dark soundscape behind it. And then I would trigger these vocal samples coming in. And some of them sounded like conversations. So it could be a really effective thing. I, I know, but you, you, were, you were ahead of the curve there, man, with that. We had some amazingly creative people at the station. Mm -hmm. I was basically just taking cues from them and mm -hmm. doing my own thing. And no, it, was, it. it was a blast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was such mm -hmm. a, and, and I didn't need to be stoned to do it. In fact, back at that time, I wasn't smoking, but I was just thrilled by, by the possibilities of it and being immersed in the moment, mm -hmm. you know, discovering what would happen. Mm -hmm. The live thing, I think after this album comes out, I think that's going to be my next artistic goal is to try to figure out a way to do things live. Now, I mean, it's frustrating. I always joke with my friends, if I lived in Europe, you know, Western Europe, I'd probably be gigging all the time <laughs> because I think Europeans, at least in terms of the more, I guess, the less dance oriented music. Yeah, they love this stuff. They love this stuff. I mean, for I mean, decades. Yeah, we, oh, for yeah. Decades, I mean, we got yeah. we got Robert Rich and Steve Roach, but a lot of the people, I mean, they got they got everybody else, you know. But here, I think, you know, especially living where we live. It'd be an amazing challenge to be able to pull this off. And I thought of how I could do it. I mean, there's the uh, New England Synthesizer Festival that happens a couple times a year down in Massachusetts. I thought about getting to that. But what I'd really love to do is find a, uh, so if anybody's listening, get in touch with me, a really good creative visual artist. And I mean, motion picture. I mean, meaning, you know, video, not still stuff. And rent out like the Plainfield Town Hall or something. And I think I would also kind of um, go for the vibe of trying to have it as this immersive experience. I would encourage people to bring yoga mats and sit or lie down as they listen to the music even, you know, not instead of just sitting in a chair. So I'd like to pull off something like that, but I think I would just have to find a good video artist to do that with. And maybe you could uh, combine it with newer virtual reality 
you know, headset. Kind oh, of that'd be things. that'd be scary. That'd be that's probably still a little further down the road because that would require <laughs> a lot of money to pull off. But yeah, that'd be interesting. Having a bunch of headsets for the audience would be the first thing. So that's the non-starter right there. Oh, but right. no, I mean, but ten years from now, who knows what I'll be doing? I mean, well, ten years. Well, from you now, could they, invite yeah. people to bring their own headsets and just have them be able to plug into. Right. The only person I even know with a headset right now is Willis. <laughs> I don't even know. Anybody, <laughs> I don't even know anybody else with a with a headset. So. Yeah, that's an interesting thing about this music is that I think in this country, I think it's there's a very low percentage of people that are even aware of this music. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, and then also one thing I struggle with is there's a lot of that crossover between this and that dreaded New Age label. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if you notice, nothing on my uh, album here. I mean, I don't consider this album a dark album. That's why I kept saying gray. I mean, I think it has some dark moments, but I think it's just really just a reflection of me. I'm not I'm not a bubbly, super happy, positive person. I mean, you know, I struggle with, you know, depression, anxiety, like a lot of people do. I, I would say I'm a dark person, but I I think I'm kind of a gray person, you know? You don't strike me as a, as a particularly dark person. I mean, I know really dark people. You right. Know, I think most people, you know, live in the gray area, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. But it's funny because I've also, I, I, as I, as I, you know, even as I'm working on the next album, I'm like, how, how do I express happiness in music? Like, or how do I see what I see as positivity or happiness? Because too often to me, the results just come out as cheesy. Yeah. And, or, or, or is, or is what I did here on this album is this an expression of happiness for me here? And I don't like. I, I'm a very materialistic person in terms of my worldview, and I don't mean materialistic like I like money. I'm just. I would not say I have what I would consider any sort of spiritual bone in my body. I don't look at things that way. I, which also makes it interesting with this kind of music, because for so many people, I mean, you listen to interviews with Steve Roach or Robert Rich. Well, I do think Robert Rich is a little less in that vein, and there is this component of spirituality or things to do with ancestors, and that's that's just not even present with me. You know, and so then I, well, well, what is this then? What is this? It's just, I don't know. I just think if, if you were to take raw, unfiltered John, whatever my essence is, and it comes out, this is how it lands. You know, I want people to enjoy it. But I also, you know, when I put this out, I thought this is gray music for gray times, you know, and I don't necessarily think that everybody wants to listen to music to necessarily be uplifted. I think people want to listen to music, just reflect I think this is a great, you know, when we live up in Vermont in this dark time of year, I mean, maybe this is why this album sounds this way, because I've lived up here for so long in the middle of the woods with many gray days like this. And it just kind of sometimes sounds like the soundtrack for me looking out my window at any given time. It's interesting that you say that you don't have spiritual bone in your body. It sounds like you're you're just kind of an atmospheric kind of a guy. You have right. that that kind of sensual orientation to the world in a way. No, you're right. And it has almost a material that even has a materialistic aspect to it, because I, I, I have often thought about, you know, why do I like what I like? You know, I'm sure everybody thinks about that, no matter what, whether you like Taylor Swift or whatever you like, you know, you think, what well, you know, you might think, why do I like what I like? And I think and I don't, don't want to say intellect, because I don't think it's the music is appealing to an intellectual basis. I'm not sitting around listening to my music and all of a sudden start thinking about Kierkegaard or something. But I think there's something in a, trying to make this sound coherent and not sound new agey because it's not what I mean. I think there's just certain things and certain sounds that tweak my brain waves a certain way. You know, I think there's a reaction. I think there's some sort of electrochemical physical reaction. That's why I say when I have a spiritual bone in my body. Okay. I don't think it's anything other than that. I don't, I don't, I don't look at this music and think, Oh, it's, it's, it's tying me into the oneness I feel with the universe or anything like that. And I'm, 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 as I say all this, I want to be clear. I'm not mocking people who think that way. 
I just, my brain just does not operate like that. And so I think a lot of times when I listen to this or create it, it's just, I don't know. It's just, I feel like it's just, it's still just my brain doing what it does in reaction to stimuli and my particular mood at the moment. But maybe some people think that is uh, spirituality. I don't know. Well, it depends on how you define spirituality. You're obviously talking about altered states of consciousness. And what a lot of people refer to as spirituality is just a connection with their inner state of being. Right. Not some overt kind of mystical, religious kind of no, or, yeah, trip. With the, un- the universe and all that other stuff. Because, you know, I have a... Because in many ways, that's just adding a, a narrative to these things. Whereas I think what we're talking about is, is a direct kind of embodied right. experience. I would say the Seneca me that also just adds a layer of wishful thinking. You know, because I mean, I think that's what a lot of these people, to me, you know, it's just maybe this is to explain my materialistic perspective is I am perfectly fine with the idea that the universe does not really care about me at all. That nothing that happens out there, I mean, things that matter to humans, I think matter to us. I don't think they matter. Once you leave this planet, I don't think they matter at all. Um, I know, like I said, a lot of people disagree with me on that, but I don't see like what I'm doing is tapping to some universal thing or anything like that. But on the same token, if somebody listens to my music and they get that experience, I'm happier in hell for them. I mean, it means I communicated with you. I touched you in some way. So, I mean, it's all good. We have different ways of getting there. And, and I think like there's probably a lot of people that would listen to my music and are very much in that mindset. And I'm fine with that. That's great. You know, but it's, it's just interesting that being in this genre I don't seem to have that component that a lot of artists in this genre seem to at least refer to in some way, whether in conversation or in their song titles or their musical themes. I just don't really seem to have that. Yeah. You just don't think along those lines. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I could if I wanted to. (laughs) No, I've tried. Believe me, I've I've tried. I've, 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 I've given many, many hours of thought to this and, you know, I'm okay with the idea if I die, that's it. And, you know, because if anything, if this is the only shot we got and it's, you know, all the more reason for me to do good works and try to live a full life. And I mean, we live on in atoms and all that, you know, the trees that we grow back in and the air that people breathe and our ashes and stuff. But even that, it's still just, it's just atoms to me. It's not, I don't feel like the essence of me is going to end up in a tree if I get buried under it somehow. (laughs) Well, a lot of people actually consider that to be a spiritual perspective. So there you are. (laughs) Well, no, well, no, it depends on what you put it. I, I look at it's like as a process. Yes. If I, you know, I get buried and the worms poop me out. I mean, yes, those atoms that made me are still there and they might go neutrify a tree, but they're just atoms. I don't, I don't look at like, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything particular once some atoms gotten to me because the atoms that are in me right now were, were in, were in some guy probably walking around Ireland 500 years ago or something like that. I mean, so. But that's a, still a pretty profound thing to think about. It can be. I find it kind of mundane actually. Well, I think it's mundane and potentially profound, depending on how you, on how you're feeling about it in the moment. You know, it's just just a you know perspective. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I mean, it ultimately comes down to are, are you you know whatever you know philosophical materialistic whatever. It's like are are you making yourself happy and are you not making other people unhappy? You know, that's what it comes down to. The bottom line for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how you came to this music and like the evolution of your oh. <laughs> experience of music growing okay, up. Okay, I got a funny story for this. And of course, it involves bong hits. <laughs> so so back when I was early 20s, working crap jobs, as most people in their early 20s tend to do, I was working in an office at a uh, 
auto body parts warehouse. It was just, you know, they would sell to body shops, you know, fenders and stuff like that. I worked in the office, but once a week when there was a truck, they'd make me go out and help unload the truck with the warehouse help, which absolutely sucked. And it was early. It was hard. It was hot. So usually before I go into work, I was five minutes away. I would, you know, start off the big blast of a bong hit. I, I wouldn't do that in the office because I had to work with numbers and people and stuff. But in the warehouse, it's, you know, nobody sees me. So I'm in there. I'm unloading the truck. The truck's unloaded. I'm high as a kite. And I hear down one of the uh, alleys, you know, the warehouse, you got the different rows. And I hear just something faint in the distance as I'm going to put away a fender. What is this? This is kind of cool. So I'm getting closer. And somebody, I don't know who. Hearts of Space was playing, you know, the, the radio show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they make music like this? This is just so cool. You know, and that was about 30-something years ago. And I, I didn't go crazy, but I started seeking out that music just a little bit. Every now and then, I'd just look up something. I'm like, this is cool. And then I think as I started getting away from, you know, more mainstream music and things like that, you know, as you start to dip your finger into progressive rock or something like that, well, there's a lot of synthesizers in progressive rock. And next thing there's overlap. And, oh, what's that tangerine dream? What's that? Okay. So, you know, one thing led to another. And then I think what finally sealed the deal for me was probably just hearing like uh, Brian Eno's music for films. I got that album and I was just like, wow, this music can be this conceptual thing that can be abstract and doesn't need to necessarily entertain me or, you know, but it could still affect me in some way. So that kept going. So I'm getting more and more into this genre. But then I remember getting, you know, guitar pedals are effects, you know, effects. When you have a guitar or bass, you can run them through these little pedals that will alter the sound. It might make it sound like distorted or like a synthesizer or thick. So I started putting a few of those things together. At the same time, I'm starting to get a little recording interface and I'm playing around with some of these synthesizers. And I'm starting to make little little pieces like this. They, I still have some of them. Some of them are really cool. I've got a whole archive of them on my thing. And I've just these little instrumental ambient blurbs. And I started getting more and more into it. And I'm like, this is really cool. But then my, I started getting bigger with the pedal board thing. I started making, next thing you know, I'm making crazy sounds on my bass that don't sound like my bass anymore. And I was also going back and forth with guitar. And I, I'm a really crappy guitar player. So I bought a six-string bass. I started making soundscapes. Maybe I, maybe I should get an actual synthesizer. I got a synthesizer and I started playing with a friend I knew who was also into this kind of stuff. And so we would get together once a week and he would just let me go nuts. I would just play all this ambient and he got it. He was cool with it. So going over and jamming on this ambient stuff for a half hour. And so the floodgates opened after that. And I think after I was in my last band, I mean, just, you know, gigging, all that kind of stuff. I was like, hmm, I wonder what it's like to just make music for myself, you know, without the pressure to make, you know, somebody dance or anything like that. And when I shifted gears on that, started doing it, man, it felt so good. And uh, I still play out and I gig and everything, but I, I don't know, this is just, this was a big shift for me. And uh, that's how I got here. It all just started with the bong in the warehouse. That makes me think of how I actually find a lot of my favorite music. I hear it in the background, usually at the end of a movie or at the end of mm-hmm. a, a TV show. I've come across some of the most fascinating and wonderful music that if I wasn't paying attention, I mm-hmm. would completely miss. That's how a lot of ambient music is. It just kind of goes into the background if you want it to. Yeah. And you didn't want it to. You heard something there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not all just ambient. I mean, there's some really amazing music that would never hit, you know, the 
the popular scene because it's not designed for right, right. Well, for yeah, that kind soundtrack of listening. music and soundtrack music. I mean, I, I mean, I should have mentioned this. As I was going through my ramble there, but I mean, that's another big thing. I've always loved film music because film music can manipulate our emotions so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're watching the movie, one thing I always like as a cliche that annoys me, I never watch a Spielberg film and then that John Williams stuff will come in. It's like, uh, and I'll look, turn to my wife and say, look, he's trying to make us cry. He's trying to make us get the feels right here. Da-da-da-da. You know, because sometimes it's blatantly obvious. But early on, I've always been obsessed with, with film soundtracks. I remember my dad had this film soundtrack from um, Rocky, the original Rocky by Bill Conti came out in 76. And I heard that album so much growing up. And I think that's why I ended up being a funk musician. Because that, you know, 70s urban Fender Rhodes, grimy sounding kind of thing. That's just in my bones now. But there was also a lot of other pieces that were the incidental music, you know, in the album. The stuff you heard in the background. And that to me, it is like ambient music sometimes. Even if it's not, you know, ambient. It's not designed to be front and center, you know. Mm-hmm. More and, is to complement the thing. Yeah. And I actually use a lot of music like that in my interview shows. Like my outros or I segues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I used to do that too. It's very effective. I mean, it's yeah. just it's just funny how you you know when you you listen to you know you can sit here and say a line, you sit here and talk about something for five minutes, and you play that same thing back with a little bit of music behind it. It just it might make it a lot more engaging. It might not, depending what you're talking about, and depending yeah. the music you choose. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I get so pissed off when I watch the TV. Occasionally, on the rare occasion, I see TV news, something coming on. And before they even get to the story, they're emotionally manipulating it. Dun, 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 dun. You know, the news story breaking out of Washington tonight. You know, I mean, it, really? You had, you had to get my heart pounding like that with the music first? You know, did, did the Capitol just blow up? What happened? Oh, no, some senator said something stupid. Okay. And that's, and, that's actually, and that's actually what I hate most about some of the overproduced Hollywood movies is that they, oh, it's they, just, they just crank up all the manipulative effects that they can do. Right. And to me, it's sickening because to me, that becomes the front and center of the whole production rather than the right. movie itself. Well, you're having more of an emotional reaction to this music than you are what's going on on the screen, where ideally soundtrack music will complement what's going on, on the screen, not overbear it. I mean, oh, it's lazy, too. Um Sometimes composers, even modern composers that do Hollywood, they'll reuse scores because I think they're so. I was just watching a film review or analysis the other night, and it was of you know two pretty much mainstream Hollywood films. I don't remember what they were, and they came out you know within three or four years of each other. And the guys as he analyzed the film, he's like, "Oh, and about half the soundtrack you used in here was from the soundtrack he did for blah blah blah." You think anybody noticed? Of course not. You know, and also I mean, there are a lot of movies that reuse the same piece that many other films do. Like for example. Brian Eno has a very the familiar, tra- yeah, oh, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, used, yeah, that's been used in like dozens of films. Oh, it was at the end of Traffic. It was the, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, every time it comes up, I get excited because it's one of my favorite Eno tracks, but I'm like, oh God, they're using this again. It's like using a Daisy Over Strings by Samuel Barber. Right. Yeah, I agree. Right. And maybe 10 years from now, we'll feel that same way about Apollo, but uh, I mean, <laughs> I'll still love it, but uh, no, yeah, it's, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, somebody wants to hire me to hire me to do your film soundtrack. I'll, I'll do a good job, I promise. But I've always been obsessed with cinematic music, and that does that does tie in a lot to where I come from because I think any any track on this album could have been a soundtrack to something. Well, one of the reasons why I like this music so much is that it is literally like soundtrack music for my life. That's exactly how I put it, and I say my life, but I also extend that to the listener. It's the soundtrack yeah. to your, your life, you know. Yeah. To to pivot to another thing about the musician artistry thing is like 
because I told you about these obstacles, I struggled with getting this out. And is what what is my marker of success? Is it success if a few people want to do a few local radio interviews for me? Is it success if I've sold five albums? By the way, nobody buys albums anymore, just so you know. Which is something I want to talk about at some point when I ask right. you about how people can find your music, because right. this whole scene has changed so dramatically within oh. our lifetimes. Oh, my God. I remember when I was a young rock guy or whatever, I used to call myself a punk jazz musician because I wanted to play jazz but did not have the chops. And the biggest thing growing up when I was in the 20s was to get the record deal, the record deal. When I hear somebody talk about getting a record deal, I laugh. I'm like, you know who gets record deals now? Taylor Swift gets record deals. You know, getting signed to a label means nothing now, at least to most people. And so I had to think about what was my own measure of success here? And I thought, well, it's not going to be album sales, obviously, because I think on Bandcamp, which is where I'm primarily distributing the album is, you know, I've probably sold three copies and probably given away another 10 or 20. And even on the streams, I'm on, you know, Spotify, Apple, all that stuff like that. I think I've made a whopping dollar eighty four so far. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'm going to pay up my mortgage with that, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Sorry for laughing, well, but it. No, it's, but, it know. is. I laugh. I laugh. It's funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, it, it's why it's why you have it's why you have old hippies back out touring again now, because since they don't get their royalties on their Crosby, Stills and Nash records anymore, they got to go out on the road constantly. But the measure of success for me, I didn't know what it was going to be until after something happened. Are you familiar with Soma FM? No. Okay. It's one of the oldest streaming internet radio stations there is. It's been around since I think 2002 or 2003. It's based out of San Francisco. It's like maybe a four or five person operation. They've got about 10 or 15 channels on there. Ranging from several kinds of ambient music, Goa, death metal, 60s lounge and spy music. They'll have a station where they take ambient music and they'll mix it in with either NASA recordings or they have another one where they mix it in with San Francisco traffic reports. And so it's been around forever and it gets a lot of listeners, even though it's pretty underground. And as I was doing my promo thing, I'm like, how do I get people to hear this thing? Because there's about 5 billion other ambient albums probably coming out the same day. I reached out to a lot of the blogs that review music. I got some good reception. I got some nice write-ups. I got to a couple podcasts. But the holy grail for me, apart from Hearts of Space or Echoes, which I didn't get into either, unfortunately, was Soma FM. Because I had a lot of people, oh, yeah, I submit music to them all the time. I never get anywhere. Lo and behold, I sent it to Soma. Not only did they pick up the album, it was a played on two channels. They have one called Drone Zone, which is like the droney ambient stuff. And they have another one called Dark Zone, which is more dark drone stuff. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm looking on there, and they have the charts for the week. Next thing you know, I'm up in the top 10. I'm like two behind Steve Roach or something. You know, I'm, I'm like in the top 10 in terms of the plays on that channel. And I'm going through the numbers. And I was in the top 10 for probably about a month and a half. It, I was getting giddy. It was amazing. And I think when I looked up the total numbers when I was done, as my star faded and the next, the next flavor, of the bubblegum ambient flavor of the month popped in there. I did the numbers up and well over a quarter million people heard my music. And I was like, wow, okay, I think that was a success. Because, you know, when I compare it to what I got on Spotify or those apples, I mean, if I, if I totaled up all my streaming on the major services, you know, I'm all, you know, Tidal, all the ones all over the world, whatever the equivalent of Spotify is in the Middle East, I'm there. I, I'd be lucky if maybe 100 people have heard my music over streaming services right now. But on Soma, over a quarter million did. So I, I kind of looked at this as a success in terms of personally. That's pretty impressive. That's what I, and I'm trying to toot my own horn, but from a personal standard, that was really impressive. I'm like, it didn't make me any, oh, I didn't get my first ASCAP check yet. 
But <laughs> and like I said, that's not why I'm doing it. But you know, I thought that was that made me feel really good. Because I'm yeah. like, okay, this place, this place that is hard, this sort of exclusive place that a lot of people into this music go to, who probably only out of the hundreds of submissions they get every week, they pick about two or three. So see what happens. <laughs> you know, but I mean, success ultimately is the fact that I finally got this done and out. Because it was, it was for the last four or five years, it's been a perpetual source of angst. You know, a crapper get off the pot moment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So take us into your studio, and I love that you call it Shabby Road Studios. Mm-hmm. And that's not original. I stole that from the Ruddles. That was that Monty Python S type spoof of the Beatles that came out yeah. in '78. Well, they're out. Their last album was Shabby Road. Okay. And uh, I always thought that was just hilarious, so I stuck with that. But yeah, Shabby Road Studios. So yeah, as I got into this ambient thing, um, I started acquiring a lot more gear, like really quickly. You know, my pedal board has about fourteen or fifteen pedals on it now. This is huge because the average person that brings a pedal board to a gig has maybe three. I've got about five or six really good synthesizers. I have a Moog. I have um, a Korg Wave State. I have a Waldorf Iridium, which is their flagship synthesizer. That thing can do anything. Uh, I've got a drum machine, which I really suck at. That's my next big thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get, I'd like to incorporate some sort of rhythmic aspect into some of my music. Minimal stuff, you know, minimalist stuff like you hear in Sibian music, nothing crazy, not no big poundy four on the floor stuff, but you know, some nice hi-hat patterns and stuff. So I have a drum machine and yeah, and I tie it all together with some interfaces and I go up there, I turn on the stuff at night and I just, sometimes I, I have something specific I want to do and other times I just see what happens. And sometimes nothing happens and I fiddle around up there for a half hour and say, okay, I'm going to go uh, watch a movie or play a video game or something. What does it look like in there? Oh, just, okay. Yeah, just, you remember, you remember, describe yeah. the whole thing. Okay. Do you remember the junkyard in Sanford and Son? Remember the show Sanford and Son from the 70s? Yeah. Okay. Remember, well, he lived in a junkyard. Remember his front yard? That's what my, <laughs> my studio <laughs> looks like. No, it, it's pretty chaotic up there. I mean, it was, it was, we did an addition to the house a few years ago. So I took over my old bedroom upstairs. It's got a cathedral ceiling. So I had to do some sound treatment. And then when you walk in, there's a pedal board in front there, some bases over in the corner, a big TV monitor at the end of it. So I can see all my multi tracks and then a big U, you know, big U shaped thing with the synthesizers all around it. So I can just sit in the middle of the synthesizers like I'm, Rick Wakeman or something. So when you say a U, so you have synthesizers on three sides? Yes. Some in front and some on the sides of yes. Okay. And do you have racks of effects nope. and things nope. like that? No. Okay. No, I mean, really, you don't need them anymore because all my recordings going into the uh, computer and I've got the best effects in the world on my computer. I don't use physical. I have sitting around, I think I have some old EQs and compressors, but I don't remember the last time I ever used them for anything. I might break out the compressor sometimes, you know, if something calls for it. But no, everything's done. Everything's done on the computer. So do you do anything to create a kind of visual atmosphere in that room, in that studio? Sometimes. Not not too much because I don't want to be, you know, a lot of times, like, for example, up on my monitor, you know, I, I kind of want to see what my multi-track is doing. I would love to just put some big, nice psychedelic image up there while I played, but I do kind of want to monitor, make sure levels are good, things like that. I generally turn the lights down pretty low. I've got some colored lights that I have blasting to certain corners of the room. And I also have, when I'm feeling a little playful, I have one of those little remote controlled thing that sends out the little, you know, sparkly little dots around the room and stuff like that. And I'll sometimes do that. But a lot of times, it's, I think I think what I do is get into my head, and that provides plenty of atmosphere right there. I mean, it's not a very appealing room. I'm going to be honest. It's it's you know it's crampy because of the cathedral 
gable, you know, the second story. It's not the most comfortable environment to be in. All things considered, I, I wish it looked very different. But, you know, you go to war with the studio you have, not the one you want, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I have a friend who lives near me who has a studio downstairs in his house. Mm-hmm. And he's surrounded on all four sides with stacks of keyboards and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And I, I had to do quite a bit of treatment to it. I had to mess around with, you know, traps, bass traps and stuff. I have some acoustic treatment on the walls to kill some reflections. I, I end up suspending some panels from the very peak of it. You know, it's that really narrow A-frame type thing. So I suspended some panels along the top, and that helped deaden some of the things. The other thing, too, is a few years ago, I had some inexplicable hearing loss in my left ear, especially in the high frequencies. And so sometimes it overloads, and it made mixing this album a nightmare because there's a lot of frequencies going on in synthesizer music, a lot of high frequencies, low frequencies. And with my problem now, everything sounds muddy. And the risk is overcompensating. So I'm, you know, if I, if I crank up all the high end on the thing to a person who's not having hearing problems, the album's going to sound horrendous. So what I did was I treated the room. I had like a room correction software where, you know, it analyzes all of the, um, you know, they do this all the time for venues. It analyzes all of the sound pockets. You, you put a mic in these sections of the room, take these measurements, it blasts this big white noise thing. And then what it does is it compensates and it is a plug-in in the, at the end of the music. So in other words, what you hear is what the music should sound like in a neutral room. So it's, it's deceiving your ears because what you're recording, since you, I'm not recording in an acoustic environment, I'm recording electronically, it's getting a pure signal. But if I play that signal back with an untreated room, it's not going to sound right. The treatment compensates for that and makes it sound to my ears more like what it would sound like in an acoustically neutral room. However... With the bad frequency problems in my left ear, I went and took my chart, the hearing chart that they gave me at the audiologist. I looked at the curve that showed, you know, my frequency drops. And I transposed that curve onto the music correction software. So I created another preset that boosts those frequencies that I'm having a problem hearing. And so when I mix, I hear those frequencies boosted as a normal non-impaired person would hear them. And then that way I have the confidence that when I mix it, and then you go and listen to it, it's going to sound like what it sounded like when I listened to it. But it was a real beast of a time getting to that point and trying to figure out how to do it. Because sometimes my ears would overload. Sometimes I get this weird pulsative tinnitus where it's, I can hear my heart beat in my ear. So I had to retrain myself. Sometimes if I cut my hand over my ear, I, I can hear the frequencies better. Sometimes if I turn my head, I'll listen to the other side. I had to just retrain myself. You know who David Torn is? Yep. Okay, well, David Torn had a some sort of cerebral incident about 20 years ago. And he completely lost his hearing in one ear. And this is somebody who's a really experimental musician who does a lot with sonics. And he had to retrain himself to hear in stereo with one ear, you know. And he would have to visualize because he wasn't just going to start, you know, putting out mono records. And he, he talked about this long process of how it was frustrating to retrain his. And I didn't obviously have to do that because I can hear in both ears. But I kept what he did in the back of my mind in terms of well, I really need to rewire my brain a little bit in order to do this. And so I went to about three or four mixes. I'd listen to them on different environments. I would have other people that listen to this kind of music. I would have them listen to it. And I was like, you know, does everything sound clear? Does this thing sound muddy? And I think sonically it sounds pretty good. Wow. It's amazing technology yeah. these days. Oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be doing it otherwise. I, I think back to the days when I had a four-track tape recorder, a little four-track Porta Studio, Tascam Porta Studio, and I didn't create much on it. You know, because having to stop and rewind things and, you know, but that's how that's how most recorded music was done up until recently. You know, I recorded in studios that use two inch Ampeg tape, you know, 
And I've gotten some other things. I've gotten into like the deterioration music sound collage stuff. I did some things. I don't know if I'll release them because they're pretty avant-garde. But I would go and take some old recordings, you know, big band music from the 20s or the crooners from the 20s. And then I'd juxtapose them, weaving them in and out. And it would take sound reel footage. And I did this really, maybe I'll send it to you. I, I did this track called Dark Magic of Loss. And I was like, what would it sound like? What would be going on in somebody's brain in their final moments if like, say they were a 95-year-old person dying now? as the brain is shutting down. And so I took two or three tracks of some very old music that would come in and out. I had things like a clock ticking in there occasionally. I'd have like little speeches come in and out, like a speech from FDR or something like that would just fade in and out. But they'd all be warped and distorted as if you were playing this back on an old reel-to-reel tape player that was going to crap, you know? And uh, the end result is pretty bizarre. It's pretty bizarre because it just does really sound like somebody sitting in a room as their life is flashing before their eyes, but as their brain is shutting down because all this chaotic stuff is going on. So, you know, I've, I've done other things too. I don't, I don't know if I'll release some of that stuff because um, I'm trying to figure out how I want to, Oh God, I hate this word. Uh, I want to figure out how I want to market myself just in terms of, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, cause I, I hear that you, this is something like Steve Roach. Steve Roach has a wide body of work. He has things to get into the tribal new agey stuff. He has stuff that is, Berlin school sequencer stuff like Tangerine Dream. He has just droneless stuff that goes on for 40 minutes. It's my first album, you know? I definitely don't want to be pigeonholed into this, mm-hmm. you know, where I feel like everything I put out now has to be a gray atmospheric album. But on the same token, since it's, it's early in my musical career, I don't think I want the next album to be some radical shift just yet. So that's what I'm figuring out right now. Mm-hmm. And my process is basically create as much music as possible from between maybe now and the end of March. And then I'm going to go through it and see what sounds the most coherent, meaning collectively. And if it turns out that I've got six songs that have some minimal beats and that sounds good, that's going to be an album. If it turns out I have six or seven pieces that are in an atmospheric vein, that's where we'll go. Mm-hmm. That's what I did with this, more or less. We did a show together, a collaboration show. And I was wondering if I had ever played any of the kind of ethnomusicological fusion stuff. Like there's this team of... Robert Mushi and Giovanni Venosta, who mm-hmm. who take found sounds from all over the world, and, mm-hmm. then they, and then they compose music to go with it, and they'll actually mix sometimes several tracks of found sounds with stuff, and some of that stuff is just some of the I find most stimulating and fascinating music. Oh, it- I did a couple pieces like this. I was almost going to do an album. I was going to call it like a decay album or something. I have some other tracks too with like, I have, there's some good plugins. Now. I don't have a real reel to reel. I have a little mono quarter inch one, but I'd love to have a four track half inch reel to reel and maybe even two of them so I could start doing the Frippertronics tape loops. But I have plugins that emulate that. And that's what I did with this is I would, I would have it. So you'd hear, you'd hear, you know, parts of this would simulate the person dying too. You'd hear like the tape would get really distorted and warbly all of a sudden, like it was getting ready to crumble. Have you ever heard, you ever listened to William Bozinski? I've never heard of him. You've never heard of William Bozinski? Oh I my don't. God! What what are they called? The uh, the disintegration tapes. They're called. He's a, he's he's an ambient avant garde artist, and he did this tracks called the disintegration tapes. And this was another thing that really influenced me. Your listeners would love to know about this if they don't already know about Bozinski. So he was going through on nine eleven, v nine eleven. He just happened to be in his apartment and he was going through a bunch of old reel-to-reel tapes of orchestral collage stuff he'd worked on, but he hadn't worked on them in a long time. So as he's playing these tapes, the iron oxide, with every pass of these tapes, the iron oxide's crumbling and the tape is falling apart. And he heard this 
and all this is nine eleven's going on. So he's starting to, things in his mind are just like, wow, I, I'm starting to see some connection here about things falling apart and the music and the deterioration of society or whatever. And so he ended up going with it. So he started putting all these tapes on and he would let the tapes run and run and run. And some of these pieces are really long. Some of them are really short because the tape deteriorated so quickly. But you hear these orchestral loops over and over. And as they go on and on, they get more and more deteriorated. Chunks of them start missing. You start hearing a warble. You hear the tape break. The song ends. And I was just so intrigued by this concept of that being the medium, of the deterioration itself being the medium. So that's when I started doing these little sound class things myself. And then after I would put the things together, I would run them through these things to simulate just this, you know, you found this tape in a wet attic somewhere, you know, and you decide to throw it on your reel to reel. And this is what comes out of it. So that's been pretty fun. I'll send you some of that stuff. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. And also send me his name because his last name sounds like something that he could totally misspell. Oh, yeah, yeah, Bazinski. Yeah, William Bazinski. I mean, he's got a lot of good stuff. I've listened to some of his other stuff. There's another, in terms of that deteriorated sound sound stuff, there was a, an artist called The Caretaker. I can't remember the name of the album, but I guess he has someone in his family who had Alzheimer's, and he wanted to uh, find a way to capture that sonically. So as he was going through it, he started off the album as, you know, music from the 40s, you know, or earlier period music. And in the first few tracks, he would manipulate them a little bit. But as the album progresses, the deteriorations get worse and worse. But he was going at it with kind of trying to simulate the increase in disorientation that one would get as they start to get dementia. And it was so powerful because by the, the last track, it, it sounds like, like maybe some old little big band number, but it's falling apart. It's deteriorating. You get this impression of, you know, this person clinging to their last fragile memories. But there's some great things that can be done with that. And I, I'm interested in exploring that a little bit more, but I also want to make sure I'm just not jumping on some sort of bandwagon. Have you heard any music like that? Um. I don't know that I've heard anything exactly like what you're describing, but I have mm-hmm. I have a friend who does very interesting audio work. I don't know quite how to describe it. She calls it strange radio, mm-hmm. even even though it it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with radio, other than that it gets broadcast on radio. But she takes sounds and mm-hmm. and acoustics and and she'll just play with stuff. And she's very creative and she has different ideas of things to do. And it sounds like it's it's in that realm. I just found it. The artist is called The Caretaker. The album's called Everywhere at the End of Time. He uh, It's this guy named, this British guy named Leyland Kirby. And he did six studio albums using degrading tape loops of sampled ballroom music to portray the uh, progression of Alzheimer's disease. And it's six hours of music basically in these different albums. And there's one called An Empty Bliss Beyond This World was the first one. Uh, I can't remember the one I have, but they're just amazing to listen to because it, when you listen to what his intention is on this uh, if you look up the caretaker and dementia you'll find the whole deal on it and it's just it's kind of mind-blowing actually i'll check it out yeah uh let me see here oh yes top of the fog it's another track on here it's about skiing and mountains in winter one of the things that really inspires me is i'm a pretty avid cross-country skier i skied like about 300 miles last year i like to go up to craftsbury outdoor center and i'll go you know, I'll go ski for four or five hours at a time sometimes. And one of the things I've always loved, you know, this living in Vermont, you know, those days where it's gray out 
And it's not snowing where you're at, but you see in the distance, you see those hills with this dark gray around them and the snow coming down over those mountains. And then all of a sudden, the burst of sunlight is on the other side of the sky. And just that dynamic nature. Well, I, I see that a lot when I'm skiing. And I'm usually listening to Steve Roach 99% of the time when I'm skiing. And I start to really make and solidify that connection between music and natural atmosphere, meaning the actual atmosphere we see, you know, weather, climate, things like that. And so I got to work on my guitar pedal board with the six string to try to create some texture. If I was to take that look of the clouds and the snow and the grayness coming around the hills as I ski, what would that sound like? Not sound like, like obviously it would sound like wind and things like that, but what would it sound like in my brain? And so I spent a month or two coming up with this texture on my bass pedal board and I let it go. And I, I let it go for about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. And I would just manipulate one or two things here and there, maybe just press a different note. And then I went back and I think I picked about the best 10 minutes of it. And then I added a few other things after that. And when I was done, I was like, this is kind of what it sounds like when I'm, you know, climbing up Franconia Ridge and I look down on the mountains or when I was up on top of Mount Elbert in Colorado and saw the mountains. And uh, I made a video of it, actually. In that one sheet I sent you, I made a really good video using lots of good free stock footage. And the video really, really personifies what I hear when I wrote that song. So that's Top of the Fog. And Nebraska is another one on there. And you can talk about the use of uh, natural sounds. That one starts off and ends with some crickets. And actually, the crickets are going through the whole track, but only subtly. That one's an interesting one. That's an earlier piece. And I wrote it afterwards. And I kept picturing in my head something like out on the field in the prairie late at night. that something's just amiss. And maybe there's people walking through a field with flashlights. And they found something. And that's what Nebraska's about. If you listen to that with that in mind, you'll, you'll exactly know what I'm talking about. You know, something, something's amiss in a field in the dark, in the middle of the heartland. Yeah, so there's some, you know, there's, there's something besides the music in these songs. Like I said, with Top of the Fog was the mountains, Ended Before was the pandemic. Nebraska is uh, a mystery, you mm -hmm. know, 
I'm sure there's some other things in there too. But that's what I like about this music, and that's what I want to give to people is put whatever you want on it, put your own print on it. You know, I mean, Nebraska. When you listen to my Nebraska tune, you might just be thinking about sitting by a nice little field in Nebraska, looking at a stream go by. And if that's the case, I still did my job. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Well, it ties back to the lyric thing that I talked about. I'm getting myself out there, but I want to give you the opportunity right. as like, the listener to have a lot of leeway as to what you mean. And if I wrote a song about something, you'll still have some leeway. I mean, there's five billion ways to interpret a Bob Dylan song, as we all know. But giving you more of a chance to get what you want out of the music. Well, it's sort of like the difference between an overwrought Hollywood production movie and reading a book. Exactly. Right. If you read a book and watch a movie, if you read the book first, nine times out of 10, when you go watch the movie, you're like, oh, that's not what I pictured. That's not what I pictured. But you watch the movie first, read the book, you're going to be thinking about the movie the whole time. Yeah. That's going to color you. Yeah. And like I said, I say this with utmost respect for our, the rich tradition of songwriting that we've, that humanity has had. But I just feel like myself personally, I, I don't feel like I need to give that much of myself to you. I, I don't want to influence you too much. I would just want to influence your experience a little bit. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's why I especially love instrumental music. Right. Top of the Fog would not be as interesting if it's me talking about how much I love mountains over it. Or God forbid singing, you know? Right. <laughs> I don't want to sing. I, I sing, I still sound like somebody like going through puberty or something. It's terrible. So anyway, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, are there any other questions you have, Tonio? You've been a great interviewer so far because you asked me all the questions I would love to be asked, but nobody ever asks. Well, thank you. So one last question. Mm -hmm. What are you listening to these days? The range of things that you're listening to. And is okay. there anything in particular that, that has stuck with you? Oh, good question. Okay. What have I been listening to lately? Uh, I have been listening a lot. I don't want to call it Berlin school, but maybe you could call it. I've been listening to a lot of artists Sort of reminiscent in some ways of the old Tangerine Dream sequencer stuff. A lot of arpeggios and textures coming in and out. But in a modern and less cold and more accessible way, there's a label I really like called Sinfira Records that has a lot of that stuff. There's an artist in particular named Martin Stürzer. He's out of Wuppertal, Germany. I really get lost in this music. A lot of times it's just, you know, nice pads come in, then little arpeggios come in and out. And it just tickles my brain in, in just the most amazing way. I've been listening to... Um, you know, Steve Roach always gets a daily play one or the other. I mean, he's so prolific. It's hard not to. I like the genre, I think, and this is the one I struggle with because, I, like I said, I'm, I'm rhythmically challenged when it comes to beats. Sibiant is an interesting, it's kind of a mellow down-tempo music. It will usually have beats. There's some artists such as um, Alpha Wave Movement that I like to listen to every now and then. There's another artist called Carbon Based Life Forms. And they've moved in a more ambient direction lately, like a really droney ambient way. But for a while, they had some things, just minimal beats, a lot of those little vocal sample type things. But, you know, not too imposing that you couldn't listen to it and not have it intrude in your mental landscape if you don't want it to. Uh, and then I um, I still, every now and then, I'll throw on some of my prog rock stuff. You know, I've been really, I've been on a, a Peter Gabriel Genesis kick lately, listen to some of that old stuff. Yeah, but, you know, I, I go through my phases and it's still just kind of an ambient synthesizer phase that I've pretty much more or less been stuck in for the last five or six years. I mean, it's funny now, what's, what's tough is when I entertain, you know, if I on a rare occasion have a dinner party. Remember those things before uh, the pandemic? <laughs> um, it's a lot harder now. It used to be, you know, I have a party, you got to appeal to a lot of people. So that usually means throw a little bit of Americana in there and maybe maybe a dead tune or two and then some reggae and 
this, that, and the other thing. It's now it's just like, I have to think a lot more about it because if can you imagine putting this album on at a party, my album, I mean, what kind of party would that be? <laughs> It'd be a, a mostly gray party. I guess so. We just have a bunch of sitting around people around drinking and looking out the window. But I mean, there's plenty of great ways to clear a party. Put on some ambient music or, or just put on a prog rock album. You know, mm-hmm. put on close to yeah, 20 minute long yes epic. That'll clear the room in no time, dude. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, I'm still, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to find new sounds. I don't want to be stuck in a rut like some people do. They get into a thing and then that's all they listen to. And, and there's another genre, there's a label out there on Bandcamp called Cryo Chamber. And they do what they call cinematic dark ambient music. It's really worth checking out. And it sounds like sort of film soundtracks from slightly dystopian movies. You know, lots of stuff. I've made a couple tracks like that myself, too. So, you know, who knows what the world holds for Thorny in the future, provided there still is a world to play music in. So, And okay. yeah, I love, I love getting lost in music. That's why I do it. That's why I do it. You know, it's, I don't want to say an escape because I think I have a pretty happy life. So it's not an escape. I look at it more of just an enhancement. Mm-hmm. And just to remind your listeners, the album, it's called Mostly Gray. Thorny is the artist's monogram. If you're interested in buying it, which nobody does anymore, you go to Bandcamp. Oh, you can buy, I think you can buy things through Apple Music and any, whatever streaming service you use, Amazon, whatever. It's all on there. It's on Tidal, Spotify, Amazon Music, all that stuff. And it's... Wither Willow Sounds is the label. And yeah, so we just look for Thorny or Wither Willow Sounds on Bandcamp. And that's how you'd find the album if you wanted to buy it. Or just look up Thorny Mostly Gray on any of the streamers, and that's how you can listen to it. All right. It's been fun to talk with you. I am so glad that we did this. And then uh, I hope your listeners enjoy the music or it resonates with them in some way. It's gray, but you know, looking out the window when it's gray, as I'm doing right now as we're speaking, yeah, it's gray, but it's still beautiful. Gray doesn't have to be associated with negativity, where I think often we do, but we also have to remember if we're going to look at things in black and white with the black being negative and white being positive. And I'm not saying I agree with those framings, but that's how we tend to be. And, you know, gray's kind of in the middle of all that. And isn't that what life really is? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, I appreciate the uh, time to talk about this. And I hope some of your listeners will at least uh, give it a whirl, give it a listen. Maybe what, what you play for them will pique their interest here. Mm-hmm. And I'll harass you when I do my next album too, which will be different. We right. talk about that too. Yeah, I look forward to that. Oh, I look forward to it too. You're a great interviewer, by the way. Thank you. You get me. You really get me. You're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's it, well, you know, it's it's frustrating in a in a way with this kind of music because a lot of people don't get it. Yep. And that's not a dig on them or anything like that. I just think a lot of people's, you know, Frank Zappa said the only reason he put lyrics in some of his songs is so people would listen to them. You know. Which was such a shame because, well, not just lyrics, but conventional lyrics. Like he would, he right. would write these conventional songs so that he could sell his albums right. and, and get to play, you know, finance what he really wanted to do. Exactly. Exactly. And, and also to be able to do his subversive stuff, which is right. my favorite of his. Right. Right. Exactly. And it's just, but, you know, I got I to sing a song about whatever, titties and beer or something, so somebody will buy the album. Yeah. So... It's a challenge. It's it's a challenge. Like I said, I, I mean, I haven't played my album for my best friends. Crazy as that may sound. I'm the same way. I don't tell people that I do an interview radio show even. Because they tune in and they would probably not be interested in most of what you talk about? I think a lot of people might actually be interested. It's just that I'm, I'm like the anti-marketer. 
Right. Okay. The anti-marketer. Yeah. Okay. No, I don't have a problem with the marketing thing. It's just frustrating with this kind of music because it just does not have massive widespread appeal. I mean, even if you ever, and if you ever get any ideas for performance thing, if you know somebody that I could collaborate with in terms of the visual stuff, please let me know or do an event somewhere you want to get involved with it. Let me know because I mean, it might even be something good that I work with some other artists about some other things. And there could be some spiritual components and things that people would resonate with or want to see or might like that and also appreciate my music. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, I wish you good luck with that and I appreciate it and your future projects. Thank you. I will keep in touch. And you and all the listeners, please have a good and safe 2023. <laughs> we've, dodged, we've dodged a few bullets in the last couple months here, but uh, there's still a lot to be concerned about out there. But yeah. Um, and with that, I will bid you adieu. And adieu to you too. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's been my pleasure. Okay. So uh, enjoy Mexico. I will. Thank you very much. I'm going to Chichen Itza. So that'll be fun. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Have a good one, ma'am. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Take care. That was John Ryan, a.k.a. Thorny. And we'll go out with Nebraska by our guest, Thorny, from his new album, Mostly Gray.
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Yeah.